I'm delighted today to bring you a very special guest. He currently serves as Chief Operating Officer and VP at Channels at, at Software AG. And here's what some of his colleagues say about him. He is a natural collaborator and a great listener. Here's another one. He's an amazing leader, absolutely committed to his team, possessing all the key skills needed to lead a team and to win admiration across the board. Warren Hector, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Paul. Maybe you could take us back, tell us uh, a little bit about where you grew up. I'm detecting, and from what I saw on, on, on LinkedIn, you're from South Africa originally. Oh, uh, sorry. Tell Region, me, okay, tell me about where you grew up in South Africa and what kind of a childhood you had. Yeah, well, uh, I was born in a small town called Dundee in the KwaZulu-Natal province. Um, it's, it's a very small town, pretty, pretty rural in many cases. Um, and yeah, due to my dad's work, we pretty much moved every five years to a different town or different city. Um, and, you know, from Dundee, we went to Washburn, which is very rural, and then to um, Glencoe, then East London, which is a coastal town, very nice coastal town in South mm -hmm. Africa. Then to Bloemfontein, which is right in the middle of South Africa. Um, and then from there, I ended up in, in Cape Town before I moved to Dublin about 22, almost 22 years ago. So I've been in Ireland now for 22 years. I'm still working on my Irish accent, as you can tell. Um, but yeah, it was a very good childhood, uh, to be honest with you. Um, very outdoors. Um, you know, I had very good parents, uh, very supportive in everything myself and my sister did. So I really can't complain with, with uh, my childhood in, in South Africa. So you came to Ireland, you said, 17 years ago? No, no, uh, almost 22 years ago. And what was it that brought you here, do you mind me asking you? Uh, a job. Um, I, I was referred to a job at um, the Oracle Inside Sales Center back then in East Point Business Park through um, a family friend and did the interviews um, and a few months later they said okay Mornay you've got the job you need to be over in one week's time which was a bit of a rush you know um, I told them look I need two weeks just to get my passport sorted um, so yeah I joined the Oracle Inside Sales Center working for the South African team when it was still based over here um, and you know, over the years, I, I progressed in my career in sales um, within the inside sales division. Eventually, um, was given team leader responsibilities, then moved into management, um, covering their consulting sales division, and eventually moved into their partner sales division. Um, and I was with Oracle here in, in Dublin for 17 years, which, you know, was a great experience. I learned a hell of a lot, met some mm. wonderful people. Um, and you know, very grateful for the experience. I met my wife in Oracle as well here in Dublin. So, uh, so yeah, I have a lot to owe the company. Does that explain why you didn't move to Dubai when the South African team went there? That's exactly why I did not move. Yeah, and also it's a bit too hot for my liking in Dubai. So I, I prefer the temperate weathers in Ireland. You know. Okay, interesting because my I've been to South Africa a couple of times. I've never been to Dundee, um, but it was hot when I was there. I yeah, it, get, it gets very hot. Yeah. No, look, yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, everybody complains about the weather in Ireland, but, you know, Ireland wouldn't be Ireland without the rainy weather, if you think about it. So I, I don't mind have, it, to be honest with you, you. know, We have the best weather in the world. People don't appreciate that because yeah. it's never too hot, never too cold, never exactly. too dry. Uh, but I, what, I am interested in what sort of a culture shock it was for you coming to this little rock off the edge of Europe. 
Um, it, it wasn't a massive culture shock. I'll tell you why. Because um, the Irish and the South Africans have a very similar sense of humor, you know, which which I appreciate. Um, the Irish are also much more down to earth. They don't take themselves too seriously, and they're not stuck up. Um, and many South Africans are, are very much the same way, you know. Um, you know, the Irish have always been very welcoming and accommodating to me. Um, I guess the culture shock was the, the, the cold weather initially, but you get used to that. Um, and, and the pub culture, you know, not that I'm complaining. I think I embraced that a bit too well in the beginning. Um, but, you know, for me, I, I think there's a lot more synergies with the South African culture um, and, and, and the Irish culture than, than differences, to be honest with you. Interesting. And when you were growing up in South Africa, were there any clues in how you behaved and what you were interested in that pointed to a career in sales? Not really. Um, it, it, my dad was always in business um, and, you know, a lot of what he had to do was sales or sales related, but it was in the, in the roads construction industry. So that's where I had a lot of exposure on business, being a businessman um, and doing strategy, that kind of stuff. So he was always my, my North Star from that perspective. Um, so I always wanted to, I guess, emulate my dad and, and, and be like him in that regards. Uh, so for me, it was just natural after school to study a business degree at university, which is what I did. Um, and then I did a postgrad in, in marketing and advertising. Um, and I started off my career in sales um, as my first job after leaving university. And then from there, just opportunities started opening up, including the one to come to, to Ireland to work for Oracle. And, you know, if opportunity knocks, you've got to grab it because um, you don't know where, where the road will lead you to, you know. Mm. Do you have a, a fun memory from your growing up that you could share with us, something that you remember back on with a sense of nostalgia? I've got a couple. I mean, I know, uh, you know, my dad teaching me to play rugby in the, in the backyard of the, of the, of the house, um, you know, going fishing on the farm, on my grandparents' farm and with my uncle and with my dad. Uh, there's beautiful spots in the mountains of South Africa to go fly fishing and trout fishing. So um, always have good memories of that. And then, you know, having a nice braai or barbecue, as you call it in Ireland, under the African skies at night, uh, there's, there's nothing better than that, to be honest with you. Mm. It sounds like your dad was a big influence on you growing up. Uh, what of his characteristics have you inherited? Well, I'd like to think, and it's for others to judge at the, at the end of the day, is, is to treat everybody with respect and equally, um, is to always try and look for the good in people um, and not try and focus on, on the bad. Um, is to treat people with fairness and to really try and, and, and create an environment to bring out the best in others. What he also taught me is as a leader, um, surround yourself with people that are better than you at the job because that's what leaders ultimately do. You, you will never be the best in everything and nor should you. You've got to surround yourself with people that are better at that job and make sure that they are given an environment to thrive. And, and that's, that's, I remember him clearly teaching me that uh, the one afternoon, you know. That's a wonderful lesson to be taught at a relatively young age. Most people take a long time, if they ever do, in fact, discover that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Look I'm not saying I'm always perfect, but uh, that's always stood yeah. to me, and, and, and that's, what I, that's my compass that I try and live out um, every single day at work. You know? Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about your, your leadership journey when you went from 
<clears throat> being an individual contributor to being in a role where you're now managing and leading other people. I'm, I'm interested in some of the, the key challenges you had in stepping into that role. Uh, the biggest challenge was um, initially as a team leader is that you're responsible for people, but you don't have direct reporting authority over them. So you kind of have to manage without authority. So that was the biggest lesson um, and adaptation that I had to make. Fortunately, I had good managers supporting me in that journey in, in Oracle, you know. Um, then when I eventually became a manager, it's the key thing for me was to temper my impatience um, because people work at sometimes at a different pace than yourself. Not that there's anything wrong with it, it's just that's their pace and you've got to work with it and embrace it because sometimes it could be better, you know, than, than mm. what you thought. And the other thing is as a leader, um, which, you know, I've, I've, I'll be honest, I've failed plenty of times, is managing my ego. Um, because once you're given a title, it can very, very quickly go to your head and you, you tend to rub people off the wrong way or you get the worst out of other people. Um, and it can create unnecessary conflict situations. And, and I've also seen it and observed it in, in other leaders above me where the ego just takes over and it, it can actually ruin teams, to be honest with you. you know? mm. That's really interesting because you, you, you started there by talking about managing without authority. And I'm wondering if everybody should go through that because it teaches you something really valuable, I would imagine, that you have to use your influence and you have to persuade people through logic and through an argument and emotion, but you have to sell your ideas and your goals to others. And that to me is the ultimate uh, skill set of any leader to be able to, even though they have the authority, not to need to rely on it. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Absolutely. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with you. Um, you know, the nice thing about having to kind of manage people without that authority is where, you know, you kind of learn that sometimes you have to show them the way um, first in order to, to get them to, to follow you, you know. Um, you can't tell them, well, you have to do it this way because it's the right way to do or because everybody expects you to. Is Okay, fine. Let me show you how to do it. Or if they make a mistake, they say, okay, look, that's fine. You know, here's a maybe a potentially better way you could have done it. Um, how do you think about that? Would you like to use that going forward, that approach, you know? Um, also, what I've learned through various coaching trainings that I've done is, is ask them what they would have done differently in that situation, you know? So it's just trying to, to work with people or for people rather than, you know, keep on telling them, oh, we have to do this and waving the finger yeah. at them. And that, that's the wrong way yeah. to do it. You mentioned there as well uh, a little bit about managing ego and I think that's something everybody to some degree experiences. How did you go about tempering that? Because I think, I think an element is important, right? Yeah, you need some, but mm. n n it's to temper it. How do you go about that? Yeah, well, I mean, look, you need an ego to get out of bed and do your job. So let's be let's be honest. But to, to manage what I call the toxic ego, um, it's it's learning through mistakes. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I've made mistakes. My, my sometimes my head got got too big for me, um, and it it created disruptions within the team or with an employee, um, and I got burnt. And then you know, fortunately, I had again good managers to coach me through it. You know. Um, but it's also where you learn that, you know, Mornay, just because you have a title doesn't mean you know everything. doesn't mean you always have mm. to be right in everything. Um, listen to others. You know, they might have ideas that's better than me. 
but for me as a person, the way I learn is through my mistakes and, and, and through doing. And and you know, sadly, I've had to learn it the hard way through my mistakes, you know. Um, and I'll be honest with you, in one case, I even had HR get involved in, in such a case. But that's how I learned, you know. Yeah. Um, and if others can learn from my mistakes, then good, you know. But people listening to this might miss out something that's really important that I'm picking up as well. The fact you're even talking about this openly tells me that this is something that you have clearly addressed and that the ability to say, look, I've made these mistakes and that vulnerability is such an important component of tempering ego. Hmm. Um, and, and, I, and I think you, you, you do that brilliantly because you've been so open about it. Um, Thank you. Tell me what, what motivates you most uh, in life? Um, sure. I'd, I'd say my family, first of all, to make my family proud. Um, you know, my parents uh, and my sister, because, you know, I'm the first member of the family to actually leave the, the shores of South Africa and to make a living in Europe. And, um, you know, as long as they're proud of that. Um, obviously, to, to ensure I, I give a good standard of living for my wife and two daughters. Um, you know, money is, is a motivator, but it's quite further down on the list, which probably is surprising to hear from people, especially if you're in sales, but, um, you know, money is a means to an end. And, and, and then again, I, I learned that, that's the hard way. And, and for me, it's just to help people in my work. That's where I really get a kick that that's what really energizes me. So if I can help one of my colleagues and, and superiors fix a problem or solve a problem, or, then, then that gives me a, a big, big boost, to be honest with you. And that energizes me. So I'd say that that motivates me in my day-to-day -day job if I can do that for people, you know. And who would you say, if you were to look outside of the work environment, do you draw on for inspiration? Uh, um, I'd, I'd probably say... You know, somebody like um, Warren Buffett, um, you know, is, is, is somebody that I would look up to. Um, I just think he's, he's got a very pragmatic and, and, and logical way of looking at the world. But he also seems to understand the value of, of human potential um, and, and working with people accordingly, you know. Um, I definitely say him as as a business leader. I'd say he, mm. he stands out uh, at the top of my mind. You know, there's other sales or other leaders out there, but there's an element. I'm not saying they're not successful, but there's an element of of toxic management to those people, which I think does not work in this day and age. And, and I'm probably being too honest in what I should. They might be very successful world leaders, um, but I think that if they one day put their heads to rest some people will, will probably look at them and say, well, you know, um, not the best leader I've ever worked with kind of thing. Yeah. I've heard people like that described as getting the job done, but leaving a wake of destruction in their path. Exactly. You know? And yeah, that's not good. Um, I wanted to ask you about, and it's gone out of my head now. It was, I was going to ask you, oh Lord. Oh, I know what it was. I wanted to ask you, um, uh, in terms of interests and hobbies, what are the kind of things that you do to relax, unwind outside of work? Uh, there's a couple of things. Um, I, I love rugby. I, I can't play it anymore because um, I, I shattered my collarbone doing sandboarding many, many years ago. So I'm not allowed to do contact sports, but I love watching rugby. 
Um, and, you know, I love doing bras or barbecues, as, as, as you'd say. Um, I'm actually building a, an, an, a built-in barbecue so that I can have barbecues during the winter times here in Ireland, you know. Um, I love cooking. I love wine. <clears throat> I enjoy a good cigar um, on, on occasions, and I, I like a good whiskey as well, you know. Sounds like a perfect evening, a barbecue with some good wine, whiskey, and a cigar. Yeah, wow. forever, you know. Yeah, I, I have to tell you about my own barbecue experience was uh, I built one with brick. We had red bricks left over after an extension on our house and I built this beautiful three sides and uh, about an hour after I got to the, to, to, to the top, my wife came out and she said, is that secure? Is that you know good? I'm looking at her going, yeah, it is. So she kicked it and the whole thing fell oh, over. Oh, I, I, yeah, I had used... In fact, I, I had to do it twice. I, the, even the second time, it wasn't right. And then, I, and then I went and got help from a neighbor, came over and said, yeah, your mix of cement and sand isn't right, and therefore it's not setting. Well, fair so, play uh, to you. I mean, look, I, I, I'm not a handyman, so I, I hire somebody to do it for me because yeah. there's no ways I can build this on my own, that's for sure. Well, I'm the same, and I just thought it was just one of those moments where I thought, oh, come on, I can build that. You know, my <laughs> father was a carpenter, and he built buildings and i thought if he can do that surely yeah. i can do this but uh yeah that's my experience of of, of barbecues but I, I do like them um you mentioned sandboarding yeah i i've, I've only done that once people don't re- i don't know if people realize how difficult that is and how much it hurts when you come off that thing i, I learned that the hard way, yes uh, yeah yeah no, it's, it's like snowboarding except on sand dunes and I, I did it when i was still living in south africa um yeah, over to probably about 24 years ago and me being the cocky arrogant person i was back then i said no i'll take the highest sand dune because i can you know because well, at least i thought i can well yeah. let's just say the sand dune won on the day so yeah yeah you're the first person i met who's actually broken something or dislocated something as a result of sandboarding but uh um in terms of lessons learned uh, in sales and leading other people what would you say if you were to advise somebody starting out in leadership would be the number one thing to get right um be curious about your team members that 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 you manage you know understand what what makes them tick um, try and understand, don't focus too much on their weaknesses, focus on their strengths rather and try and build those strengths to make it even stronger. Okay. Mm. Um, and again, put your ego aside. Um, you know, you have an ego cause it's healthy. It gets you out of bed, mm. gets you to do the job, but don't let it, um, you know, take over from, from influencing or, or up, upsetting the people in your team. When it comes to customers, be curious about the customer. Um, Ask them about their business. Ask them about what are their future goals and ambitions. You know, I, I find that once you take that kind of interest, slowly but surely they open up a bit more and, and you start building a rapport and relationship. Don't focus on your solutions or your features and benefits um, until, until a bit later in the sales cycle mm. once you really understand the customer's business and mm. hopefully how your solution can, can satisfy that business. You know? mm. I'd love to know something about you, Morna, that you reckon nobody else knows certainly people in your in your work sphere might not know about you something that you do an interest you have an experience you've had in the past that people might be surprised when they hear about it 
Yeah. Have you got um, yeah. Um, acting. I've, I've taken up um, acting classes at the beginning of the year uh, purely because I like to challenge myself and do something that scares me. Once a year, I always try and do something that scares me. So I figured, look, standing in front of people and pretending to be somebody that I'm not will scare me. And um, yeah, I did a 10-week course and it actually worked out quite well. I, I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. Um, so now I'm just, you know, dabbling almost like a hobby in in, in these, you know, um, amateur acting groups and just taking part in some, some show reels and stuff, you know, nothing major. I don't think you'll see me in Hollywood. Um, but it's just nice to practice that creative side of the brain a bit. And I actually find that helps me in work as well, you know, to mm. stimulate the creative side of the brain, doing something creative. You know? Have you joined any kind of a theater group? Uh, no, I'm funny enough. I'm actually meeting a, a small group of actors uh, tonight where we're going to go through, um, you know, uh, two by two dialogues and, you know, eventually they're going to record it. But I haven't joined an, a, an acting group per se purely because of time. Uh, you know, I don't think I can take part in shows because I have a full time job that I enjoy. So I don't I don't want to throw that away, you know. So, uh, yeah. so yeah. It's, it's interesting that because I remember a, a David Sander once said that sales was a Broadway show put on by a psychiatrist. <laughs> that's, that's pretty accurate, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was recommended that we in the business would take acting lessons. And the idea being that when you're in sales, and I think leadership, sales leadership, is, is no different. And I'd be curious to get your take on this is that you are playing different roles the entire time. Yeah. And there's a skill set required to inhabit those roles in an authentic way that yeah. isn't forced. And I just wonder what your experience, as you've gone through that 10-week process, what were some of the thoughts you had about how this might apply in your own world? Well, definitely. What almost immediate, it had an immediate effect was in terms of presentations, video conferencing presentations like this, you know, the way you breathe, the way you sit, um, articulation of words. I'm not saying I'm perfect yet, but, uh, you know, trying to work on it. So that's, that's where I immediately learned something new. I think where it also helps is because what they teach you with, in acting and with, with character assessment and building a character is to put yourself in the mind and in the shoes of the character. Um, so when I talk to others within the work or even customers, I really try hard to listen to them to try and put myself in their position. So what if I were them? How would I feel? You know, mm. if I react the way they're reacting, why is that? Um, and that helps me. That helps me form die form a report with them a bit better. You know. Yeah. I'm still learning that. I'm still trying to refine it. But funny enough, mm. that's what I learned out of the acting course as well. You know? No, that's, I hadn't thought of that angle, the angle to be able to put yourself into the character, walk in the shoes, I guess, as we, we have been told, of the prospect and to imagine the world. And I think acting skills probably give you that ability because you're used to switching into, or switching out of, more importantly, at, at some level. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you tried improv yet? That was the first thing we did. That was the first two weeks is was improv. They focus a lot on improv, which also helps to break down the inhibitions for, for the individual, but also the group. So that was fun, actually. I enjoyed that. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great exercise, I find, with sales reps as well, because it teaches them to really listen, because you, yeah. you have to pay attention to what you're being given and, and, and also not to interrupt it, but to carry it on. And so it builds Absolutely. that in sit. Yeah. It's, I would, and, it's, and it's fun. That's the key yeah. thing as well. People yeah, have a blast doing it. 
Yeah, interesting. Um, have you any desires on any particular type of role that you'd like to play? Um, well, at the moment, I think because of my age and that, I, I probably fit the lawyer, the doctor, um, <laughs> you know, the, the businessman. That's that's what the teacher told me. You know, you'll make a great, you know, businessman, lawyer, doctor on screen. Um, somebody once said, I'll, I'll make a good um, um, mafia head. Um, so I don't know how I should take that. But anyway. about that. I, I, I see you as just out of the side of my eye, I'm, I'm thinking... You mentioned doctor, actually, a doctor in a Western. And I don't know why I picked that, but I can see you in a three-piece suit, little round glasses with that leather bag. I just need to get the hat. I'll I'll try and invest one of those, you know? Yeah, very good. So in terms of what you do professionally, Mm. talk to me a little bit about what it is and and, and what more, more importantly, I think, is why you do what you do. You said it's not about money. And you said you get a kick out of helping people, mm. but you could you could help people by joining the Red Cross. So so there are other ways of getting that. There are other ways mm. of getting money. Why this? What I like about the CEO role is is varied. So I have my fingers in a lot of pies. Okay, and I every day I'm faced with problems and issues, and and I like solving those problems. I like solving those issues. A lot of it is people related. Um, and and that's why I enjoy just understanding what makes people tick and see how I can help them just to move forward. Mm. Conflict resolution is also a big part of my of my job. But again, if you don't bring your ego into the equation, it makes it a little bit easier to deal with that con- with that conflict. Um, obviously, as a chief operating officer, I'm heavily focused on pipeline generation, the progression of pipeline, making sure that we follow the right cadence, the right steps. Um, making sure that we have the necessary trainings in place to ensure our team is fully, fully briefed, you know. Um, and then obviously I deal with partners and customers on, on escalation issues, you know. Um, you know, sometimes if a partner doesn't pay their bills in time and it gets bad, then I, I jump in and I get involved, you know. Um, so that's why I say I, I like helping people solve their problems because I can see the how happy they are at the end of it. I can see how grateful they are at the end of it, you know, um, and it's always nice when they send me a message or a message saying, you know, thank you for helping me out with this. I really do appreciate this. Um, I'm also very good at playing devil's advocate. So I'm able to help people see a different point of view that they might not have seen. And that also helps them to sometimes move forward. And, and um, yeah, if you ask a lot of the people that report into me or have reported to me, they say, Mona, you're very good at playing the devil's advocate, you know. Um, but it seems to get get the job done and help them to move forward in that, you know. Does that, are you contrarian by nature? Sorry, come again? Are you contrarian by nature? I wouldn't say so. Um, you know, again, it's for others to, to judge whether I am or not, mm. you know. But I, I wouldn't really put myself okay. into, into that box, you know. No, I just wonder, sometimes the devil's advocate can be a, a place you go to because it's part of the problem-solving skill set, uh, or it can be just... People do it because of their nature. They, they, they tend to take an oppositional view. No, I, t- I don't purposefully do that, for sure. Yeah, for yeah. me, it's, it, it's the logical step in certain situations, you know. Um, mm. I find if I get stuck or if somebody gets stuck on a certain issue, to take that approach helps to break that, that impasse, you know, one mm. way or another. Again, it depends on the situation. I would not use it all the time, you know. Yeah. Um, I also use it for 
to people that always come to me asking me to solve their problems constantly. And if I do that for them the whole time, they stop thinking on their own. They stop, they become lazy. And, and that's some way, that's the way I used to jolt them to say, you can solve this on your own. You know, uh, you don't need me to do that for you. Mm. You know, mm. um, so it's just a tactic I use at the at the right place at the right mm. time and with the right person, obviously. You know, mm. at the time of recording this, we're coming into summer 2022. Um, the last two years have been interesting, to uh, say the least. What positives have you taken out of the entire pandemic experience? I was able to spend more time with my family. Uh, I used to travel on a weekly basis um, prior to the pandemic. Um, and it, it was just nice to just to be at home. Um, I ended up working a lot more than what I expected, but I think that's the, mo that's the same case for everybody. Uh, so it definitely helped me to become a lot more productive. But from a, a family perspective, uh, I was able to spend more time with my wife and kids, you know, which is good. How will you be able to hold on to some of that? Well, we're never going to go back, at least in software AG where I work now, we're never going to go back to the way it was before with the traveling, you know. So there, there will be a balance now. Um, I can see myself only traveling about once a month, twice a month, which is fine, you know. Um, we, we can live with that, you know. I'm sure the wife and kids would like to see me get out of the house every now and then as well, you know. Um, mm. But look, I, it, the days of traveling every single week, that's long gone. I think the world has moved on from that. And at least within software AG, yeah. I think we you know. I'm always curious about why that is. Why? Because the technology that's enabled us to do this was there two years ago. Mm. Really no different. Um, why there was that such resistance? Was it that we, we were just... The habit was traveling when we had to go to a meeting. I know when I traveled a lot, it kind of made me feel a little bit important. You were traveling, you were coming home, you were tired. You felt like you'd put in a good shift that mm. week. Um, when you didn't travel, when you were at home, it just felt like you weren't part of something. Yeah. And I think the, for me anyway, the remote changed all of that. And I'm, and I'm curious to know, is it that we've let go of the habit or we, we see it for what it is, that it was just actually an interruption of what's really important to us, which is our families. We were forced to break the habit as human beings because of a, mm. you know, a horrible world event that affected so many people negatively. So... You know, I think once the habit was broken, as human beings, our psyche, uh, and we all globally realized, but hang on a second, we, we can actually survive and be productive without going back to the way it was before, you know. So we learn from breaking that habit. And I think right now it's just about finding the balance between the two. And, and I think that's where hybrid working is, is going to be the thing of, of the future because as humans, as organizations, as leaders, I think we all realize it's about balance, like everything in life. It's just about balance, you know. What do you see from your perspective are the leadership challenges of managing a hybrid working environment? Um, it's, I think as leaders, it's giving trust to your employees to trust them they'll get the job done and that you don't need to see them in the office every single, every single day. You don't have to watch over them. It's just trust your people and I think there's a lot of insecure leaders out there still that's very very uncomfortable um, by doing that um, I think some of the other challenges is um, is to make sure that you are still able to create a team culture within a company within the team uh, without being physically present all the time um, I think teams and organizations are slowly but le surely learning how to do that but it's going to 
take time um, because that's that's important. A healthy culture is important to bring out the best mm. in your individuals as well. And you can't do that remotely the whole time. It's it, that that doesn't work, you know. Um, you know, at least we you know we're more open to meeting with customers now. So that's where traveling is allowed. So I think you know we'll probably see more traveling when it comes to customers and meeting customers face to face. You know. Yeah, I'm, my own hope is that it, it doesn't. Re- I know you said it won't return, and it just I have a small fear that with airports opening up and flights opening up, and that we could kind of slip back into that. It's like you know when you go on a diet to lose weight, and you get into a habit of, and then slowly, bit by bit, you get into the old habits because they appeal to something in us. And there is an appeal to getting out and meeting with people. And there's also an appeal, again, all those other things about being busy. And, yeah, I, I really hope we, we don't. No, true. And I can see where you're coming from. But I think the one thing that that will make companies have a few checks and balances on that is, and you as a, as a CEO, you've got a P&L to manage. And let's be honest, cost of traveling is ridiculous. I mean, I, I'm over in London next week. And I'm for two nights, I'm having to pay £800 at a hotel for two nights. Yeah. You know, it Companies, all companies are going to realize, look, it's, it's becoming cost prohibitive. So we're going to have to keep it, you know, keep that balance, so to speak, you know. Yeah. And, and you're right. And the truth is 80, 90 percent of the stuff that we do face to face could easily be done remotely, just like this. Exactly. For sure. Um, I wanted to ask you also about. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned I, I'm interested in the culture a bit in terms of forming culture in a hybrid world. You said that it. There's only so much you can do remotely. What are you seeing that is working, that, that, that is working and that fits within this hybrid world, but is also helping build a, a company culture and one that's based where people are also coming together on certain company values? Because that, they're the areas I, I think that are hard to yeah. capture remotely. Yeah, uh, look, what I'm seeing seems to work for for most companies, even for us here in Software AG, is that you know you you ask people once or twice a week that everybody comes into the office, be it a Tuesday or Wednesday, you know, um, and once a month everybody maybe stays afterwards for a few drinks as a team together at, at the local pub, you know. Um, that's the kind of things that I'm seeing is, is happening a lot that just tries and gets the, the dynamics going and gets a healthy culture building up within a team. Um, but when they're in the office, you, you know, you've got to organize, uh, you know, brainstorming sessions, uh, deal review sessions, just to make sure that everybody's on the same page when it comes to evaluating a customer, evaluating the account plan, evaluating the opportunity plan, you know, mm. uh, that kind of develops that business culture as well. Mm. Um, I would hate to see, especially with sales teams, where they don't come into the office for weeks on end. You know, I think once mm. or twice a week that you know they should still come into the office at least. You know, mm. and that would be a red flag as well. You'd worry about them if they weren't doing that because we do need it. I worked remotely for twenty years since I started doing this, and even before actually, when I worked for Motorola, excuse me, <coughs> I worked for the UK, but I was based in Ireland, and so I, I had a home office, but I had a desk at a Motorola factory in Dublin, mm-hmm. and. I would have to go in there. I'm, I'm not the most social person, but I would have to go in there once or twice a week. And I would just spend time walking around saying hello to people. You kind of fill up on that. And then you can go away quietly and, yeah. and do your work. But it, 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 it's, it's, it's a real need. 
and therefore if people weren't showing up for that that would be a huge red flag as far as exactly it creates a buzz like i mean sometimes we we have you know pipeline call out days um with within our inside sales division you know and mm. getting them all in the office doing together that energy that buzz you know i think that's mm. healthy that's good and and that's why we try and encourage it from time to time you know yeah um i had another question on this to to, to wrap it up on the hybrid stuff that I wanted to ask you. I'll come, I'll come back to it. Um, tell me a little bit more now what your hope for the future is. Um, for the world, for Ireland, for, for in general, I mean, for, I guess for Ireland, because, you know, it's my adoptive country and I'm, and I'm pretty, pretty precious about it these days. Um, I just like Ireland to, to be seen as a leader in, in Europe. Um, you know, from a business perspective, creating a business environment where more and more companies would like to invest um, in Ireland to set up Campia. Um, mm. You know, I'd, I'd like to see, you know, some some balance in terms of affordability of, of housing and making sure everybody has, has a place to live and a roof over their head. You know, I think Ireland can achieve that. Um, I think for the world, I'd, I'd like just some sensibility to prevail within leaders, which is very difficult to come by these days. But... You know, that's probably more of a pipe dream than anything else. And, you know, I think humans have the capacity. They just need to, in many cases, get rid of their egos and, and just focus on the right thing. You know? Yeah, and I, I think you're right. You're always going to have that because people will always be damaged for whatever mm -hmm. reason. And some of those end up in leadership positions. Or, and, and as we talked about, they leave a wake, a wake of destruction. Exactly. Um, and, and, and the destruction some puts uh, the corporate uh, wake into into context for sure. Yeah. Um, on the Ireland thing, yeah, I couldn't agree more. The the pricing now I see with my children is they're priced out of it. You it's can't crazy. Rent, it's, you can't it's, buy. It's not right, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's not right. And and I don't know how it's going to be addressed because we have more pressures now on the system rather than less. Hmm. So, but uh, again, I'm glad I'm not. I don't have to solve that one. Yeah, yeah. It'll, it'll be interesting. Um, I'd like to play Desert Island with you uh, for a second. If you had, if you were, if there was only one item you could take with you, you're going to be on a desert island forever. And uh, you can't take family with you, you can't take pets with you. What would you take? Uh, you bring the the survivalist instincts out in me. I'd take a flint because without fire, you you can't survive. So, uh, so that, that that's being very pragmatic and uh, about about it, you know. Uh, so yeah, definitely a flint because you need fire. Without fire, you you won't survive, you know. Yeah, I didn't say where the island was. It was just sand in the middle of the desert. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. Well, then I'm screwed in that case. You yeah, know? you you wouldn't last very long in that. In that if that's the case. Um, if there was, if your house were burning down, and again your family are safe, your computer and your phone are safe, and you have time to run back in and grab one thing, what would it be and why? Um, nothing. Um, I'm, I'm not. I don't think I'm materialistic in that sense. You know, uh, mm. possessions, materialism comes and goes. Um, mm. So I don't think I'd. As long as my family is fine, <laughs> then I'm fine. You know, but materialistic yeah. things, it's irrelevant in this world. Let's be honest. You know. Mm. Mm. Scariest experience? Um, I went parachuting many, many years ago when I was living in South Africa, um, when, in Bloemfontein. I was studying there. Mm. Um, and I went up, jumped out of the plane, and my parachute malfunctioned. 
and the lines got tangled, which means I I would eventually lose control of my parachute and I would fall like a lead balloon out of the sky. Yeah. So um, I had to cut away and open my emergency and those few seconds was the scariest because um, if it didn't work, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you, you know. Was it a, um, a static line jump you did then? Or had you it was, to... Yeah, it was still a static line. It was on my fifth jump. So, you know, with static line, you free fall for about three seconds. Yeah. Um, and then when I cut away, you obviously free fall for a few seconds before your emergency um, opens up. So, so yeah, that, that was pretty much my, my most scariest moment. Was it a barometric sensor that opened the, the emergency or did you have to rip it? I had to, I had to rip and open. That takes incredible... Uh, presence of mind to be able to do that yeah um well they trained as well let's let's put it that way you know i would imagine that if that was your first jump you were screwed uh, probably you, yeah your, your mind is all over the place and even though you train i think because it's such a new experience yeah i, I look i don't know i mean it's mm. just i know they train you very well but you know also if you if you don't calm down if you don't think in those situations you mm. will die so so I remember taking a very deep breath when I realized what was going on and saying, okay, and I put, shot up a little prayer and I was saying, look, God, it's now or never. <laughs> so, um, you know, fortunately he smiled upon me and the, the emergency opened up. Um, but the adrenaline rush was an amazing experience. I mean, uh, you know, once you land and you realize what has just happened, you know, I was buzzing for the rest of the day, you know. So I take it you've done parachuting then, you know. Well, only the once. Um, and I absolutely loved it. Uh, I have to say, it was a thing that I always wanted to do when I saw one of these uh, leaflets. They were looking, some club in Ireland, you know, you have to collect so much money for a charity and then you can yeah. go and jump. And uh, yeah, I did it off my own. I'm, the interesting trigger for me was I had got the leaflet because I always wanted to do it, but it was sitting there for a couple of months. Nothing happened. And then one day I was coming home after a big game in Croke Park dropped my brother-in-law off and I was going down this back road to where I live and the back road is a very narrow road and there's a number of junctions on it also quite narrow and all yeah. of them I have the right of way except one yeah and so I'm booting down this probably my head is buzzing still with the game mm. we won and uh, I saw the stop sign too late and I went oh, across no. this junction and there was this and I felt so sorry for the guy because it was 100% my fault it was a four-day-old Mercedes, and oh, he, no. hit, he hit the, my, my back door just behind me. Again, that's lucky, because if he hit my side door, again, I might not be here. Car yeah. spun around, airbags went off. And interestingly, I found that in the days following, that every time I'd come to a junction, I could feel myself just this, just like everything is tensing up, like you're, yeah. you're waiting for this impact. And I thought, this is mad, this is crazy. Mm. So I said, I'm going to fix this. Mm. And I went home and I, I, I rang up the parachute, uh, the club, and I said, when's your next jump? And they said, Sunday week, depending on the weather, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And uh, drove down, got in, went up. And obviously, it's, it's, for me, it was a tandem jump. Yeah. And uh, what is it, about 10,000 feet. And boy, did that fix my uh, <laughs> problem. And I think what it is, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a shock treatment to the brain because when you yeah. jump out, for those few seconds before, uh, 
yeah, to, to, before those, you get to that kind of terminal velocity where it's now you're like in a wind tunnel rather than you, you no longer have the falling feeling. Is everything, you know, your blue, green, everything was just, your, your brain was scrambled, absolutely exactly. scrambled. And I think anything that was in there from two weeks prior was just literally, it was like a reset button. Yeah, but that's good, and, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah. good to approach it that way, you know, you've got to, you've got to face your fears and get on with it, you know. Yeah. And it was amazing. You, you, you're, you're, you, you talked about the adrenaline. Now, obviously, I didn't have the same adrenaline when I landed. You do experience it. There's no question. You, 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 yeah. you. But I experienced for literally for days, maybe even a few weeks afterwards, I could be driving along, pull up at the traffic lights, and I'd start to giggle. <laughs> and I go, I did it. I did it. That's good. Like, That's brilliant. Yeah, and and you kind of get a feeling of you did it, and nobody can take that from you. Exactly. And, exactly. Yeah, and then I wanted to go out. See, then the problem was I wanted to do more and more of it. And my wife said to me, "Look, you've had your, you, you, you've done it." And she'd be very risk adverse. And she said to me, <laughs> "This is the best." She said to me, "We were out one night for dinner with my brother-in-law, her sister, and her sister's husband, and myself. Yeah. And we were talking. It was February, and we were the the parachute jump I'd done in the previous October. And she said." We were talking about goal setting, what we plan to do that year, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I said, definitely going to, you know, do, I, I really always wanted to do a, a, a jump, uh, free fall, but yeah. without tandem. Because to me, there's no guts in, in the tandem jump because you don't jump. Somebody else jumps, you're just. Somebody else does it for you. Yeah. Right. So you get the adrenaline, but you don't get the, the real achievement, which is overcoming that fear of jumping. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And so that's still unfulfilled with me. But uh, I can only recommend but, it, you know. So uh, no, I, 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 for sure, I keep thinking that when I go to Florida, that would be the place to do it because yeah. I'd have to do a few jumps, obviously, before I'd get to uh, jump solo. But February, we're talking about goal setting, and I said I want to do this, and my wife kind of said, no, no, no. She says my brother-in-law was training for the marathon. Why don't you do the marathon with Mark? Yeah, and uh, he had. Trained twice before and had to pull out late stage through injury. This was his year, third time lucky. And I always hated running with a passion, never did it. Two miles was been the furthest I'd ever run many, many years ago. And I said, you must be joking. I hate running. She goes, this was it. One liner, you talk about influence and selling. She says, yeah, I suppose you're probably too old. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Oh. I was 40, 42 at the time, and uh, that's it. Eight months later, I ran the Dublin City Marathon. Oh, good. I, 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 I completed it, I should say. Yeah, oh, good. Oh, well, she, she, I hope she, I hope she uh, gave you a good prize for, for proving her wrong, you know? Well, it's funny is, actually, you mentioned at the very beginning of this about you wanting your family to be, uh, have pride in you, hmm. to, be, to be proud. That was the thing I took out of the marathon more than anything else, that my mother, who's now no longer with us, my wife and my children, were at, I knew they were going to be at the finish line. Yeah. And at the last mile, I was, I mean, I was, I was barely putting one foot in front of the other. I was really struggling. Yeah. And I wanted to walk that last mile. But I kept thinking, because I didn't know where they were going to be. Yeah. And I kept thinking, I don't want them to see me walk. I want them to see me running because I wanted them to be to be proud. Yeah. And yeah. That Brilliant. Was, that was that's good. No, that's yeah, good. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Oh, yeah. Well done. 
Yeah. Have you any un- final couple of questions for you, Morna? Mm. Um, have you any unfulfilled? Ambitions like that. I don't mean work-wise, but things that you you know. Uh, what do they call it? Um, bucket list bucket, items. Bucket list. That's it. Yeah, yeah bucket yeah. list items. Oh no, I've, I've got a couple. You know, um, I'd I'd still like to you know do a bit of snorkeling at some of the the beauty spots in the world like Bora Bora, uh, Great Barrier Reef, uh, for example. Um, I'd actually like to to climb Mount Kilimanjaro one day. I want to travel route 66 in the u.s um either on a harley or on an open top cadillac um hmm. so that's, that's one of the the things i want to do and i'd like to go fly fishing in alaska that's another thing that i want to do as well interesting yeah yeah the route 66 i used to have a harley actually i changed it for a bmw recently uh it's it's amazing <laughs> i was at a friend's house with this guy and i had my harley jacket on me yeah. and and he says to me, oh, you Harley, you know, did you have a Harley? And I said, I used to. I said, I just changed it recently. Well, the disgust on his face. <laughs> it was like I had, I had committed treason. It was like, oh, how man. could you leave the family? Oh, amazing. But uh, yeah, I, Northern Lights is another good, good one I've done. But that's, um, you know, uh, that's a yeah, good one. Actually. Kid, no, I know my wife yeah. wants to do that. So I definitely need to try and uh, treat her to that one day. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, final question. Before I let you go, Morna, is when your time on this planet is done and there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title of it to be? Um, I, you know, I'd like people to think this this was a good guy. You know, he was uh, he had some integrity. Um, he did the right things at the right time. Um, and he hopefully left the world and the people that he engaged with in a better place. Um, so, yeah, hopefully. We'll see. Only time will tell, huh? And for everything I've read about you, Morna, I think you've more than achieved that already. So you're coasting from here on in. Thanks, Paul. No, thank you. It was a good time. Appreciate the it's, conversation. It, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Have a good one, eh?